probably did hate Mayo and we thought it was hate at the time because these guys are trying to take away our dreams. The Football Pod live Thursday, June 2nd in Castle Bar. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events and get your tickets now. Friday Night Racing on Off The Ball. Brought to you by Horse Racing Ireland. Love every racing moment. Visit hri.ie. It's five minutes past three this Friday afternoon. If you're listening to us live or you're watching us live on our YouTube channel or maybe you're uh, catching us this evening on Off The Ball on News Talk and Friday Night Racing on Off The Ball is brought to you by Horse Racing Ireland. Love every racing moment. Visit hri.ie. You can follow the Twitter account at hri racing and the hashtag is every racing moment. As ever, Johnny Ward is with us. Johnny, good afternoon to you. How are you getting on, Ger? Also with us, though, this week is Robbie Power, who has announced his retirement from the game. Robbie, first off, congratulations. That's the first thing to say when somebody announces a retirement after a career as glittering and brilliant as yours. How are you feeling now, a week on from the announcement, and after all the messages have slowly started to settle down? Thanks very much, Ger. Yeah, um, no, I feel fantastic. And, um, yeah, two weeks on now. I sat in the horse actually this morning for the first time since I got off Tiapu in, uh, in Punchestown and... Yeah, no, it's um, it's a weight off my shoulders, you know. It was great to get it out there and to finally do it. So, um, no, I feel great. You knew it was coming for a while. Yeah, I did. I knew. I knew that uh, sort of around middle of March time. I thought this would be my final season. The body's not able for another season, and it was hoping that at somewhere along between the middle of March and the end of April, that at one of the festivals I'd have a high or a good a good week that I could um, announce on a good note. And what was the final part in, in March that happened for you that was like, okay, I've 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 done this as long as I possibly can? Um, before I came back after breaking my hip in Tremor, I was with then the King in Santry and, and Neve Guy, the, my physio at home, and, and Maria Keely in Kamesson have been working very hard on me. And um, I got the hip injected before I returned to race riding, and it did give me huge relief for a couple of weeks. But then... With the arthritis I have in my hip, the injection wore off after a couple of weeks and the whole way through, sort of from halfway through March until I retired, I was taking painkillers every day and getting out of bed in the morning was becoming a struggle and I knew that if we could get through the next six weeks that I, I'd call time on it, but I didn't. I knew my body wasn't there for another season. Is, is that, obviously it's cumulative over a period of time, it, it gets worse. Is that going to ease off now that you're not putting your body through the rigours day in, day out? Yeah, I think it has actually. I, I mean, I've done very little for the last two weeks. Um, I went to actually badminton horse trials last weekend. My sister was competing there, and I actually thought coming home out of badminton with all the walking that that I had to do that I, I'd be very sore, but it actually wasn't. And it just goes to show that when you're on horseback, um, the, the 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 space between your hips or hips are stretched the whole time, and it just um, was what was was causing me the pain. So that gives you hope that like the long-term repercussions might not be too serious, that maybe you're going to be grand for your retirement. Yeah, well, I, I, am, I am at some stage because of the arthritis in my hip. I am going to have to have a, a hip replacement. Um, I thought that would be sooner rather than later when I, when I stopped riding. But the way everything has settled down over the last couple of weeks, um, I hopefully will put it off for, for a bit longer. Uh, Professor Queeley in, in Santry, who's my surgeon, told me that... Um, he didn't want to see me until I was in excruciating pain. So, uh, <laughs> oh, hopefully, we can we can put that off for a little bit longer. Was it a good thing, Robbie, that your decision was almost kind of made for you? Um, yeah, I suppose it was. It, there comes a time in every jockey's career that you have to hang up your boots, and not every jockey is as lucky as I was to get to do it on, on 
sort of my own terms uh, to go out on, on a good note in Punchestown was was fantastic. But um, yeah, I suppose it was a little easier that the decision was made for me. That um, I did contemplate now over the last number of weeks before Punchestown that maybe I could. There be certain days I'd feel good and I'd say oh, maybe I can get another season out of it. You know, so. Uh, even my agent on, on the Friday morning, he knew, and, and my wife Hannah knew that I was planning to announce my retirement that day. And uh, he said to me, he says, uh, are you sure you want to do this now? You're still writing well and you can still maybe get another bit out of this. So I said, no, Kieran, I'm in enough pain as it is, so it's time to go. The, the, the I suppose, like, a jockey at that age, do you feel you were riding as well as ever, um, essentially, before you got the hip problems? Do, do, how, how long does a jumps jockey kind of, how long is a jumps jockey at his peak, do you think? Oh sure, look the way the way jockeys sort of look after themselves nowadays and, and the care that's out there for jockeys, you can be there for a long, long time, you know. There's so much better treatment now for uh recovery from injuries with places like the likes of Santry and uh Jennifer Pugh does a fantastic job and the awareness for jockeys. Um if you keep yourself in good shape you can you can ride for as long as you want. And you're I mean to to be on the go for Essentially, two decades. Like it's 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 a rare thing to do, and to have like just looking at your stats, like your even your last season, you had a fifteen percent strike rate, eighteen percent strike rate in two thousand and fifteen, two thousand and sixteen, and I suppose you you almost blossomed in the second half of your career more so. Yeah, I did. I suppose. Um, yeah, the results would say that. Um, I thought I was riding as well in two thousand and six or seven as I was in twenty eighteen or nineteen. You know, that's the mm. just the way it is, but. There's no doubt with with jockeys, especially national jockeys, um, the longer you're around, the more experience you get. You, you do get better with age. Um, that's just common sense. Um, the more riding you do and, and the more big winners you ride, the more confidence you get. And uh, it definitely makes it a bit easier. Well, we, people talk about Ruby Walsh's internal clock being very good. If you look back on your career, what was the thing that you were good at that allowed you to win those big races? Um, I suppose if you look back at my career, I suppose a lot of my winners were over fences. Um, my big winners were over, over over fences, and I think I enjoyed riding over fences a lot more than I did riding over hurdles. Um, I had a good eye for a stride, and I think that was a huge benefit to me riding over fences more so than hurdles. Um, yeah, I, I suppose that was probably my greatest asset was that I, I could see a stride maybe a bit earlier than some other jockeys. Um, my show jumping career starting off doing that show jumping would have been would have been a huge help for that. I was going to ask, was that uh, was that your breeding? Your breeding lines would suggest that you're you're good at that. Yeah, yeah. Daddy always says, said that. Uh, he said a knife for a stride is um, is God given. You can't teach it to anyone. So uh, yeah, but I suppose that yeah, that that's why it, and that's why I enjoyed riding offences a lot more. I really really enjoyed riding offences. I thought I was a better. I think I definitely a better steeplechase jockey than I was a hurdle jockey. Like it, this is maybe the dumbest question I'll ever ask, but is there like a is there a, a momentary dopamine hit? Like, is it actually really enjoyable just to get that stride right every time? Where you're like, ah, oh, good stride, good stride. Like in the middle of a race, are you actually at some level in your subconscious going, yeah, good, and and that that gives you pleasure? Yeah, I, I used to get great pleasure out of riding novice chasers when you when you ride a horse that um, maybe hadn't been the best jumper in the world or something like that, and and you hadn't been schooling great at home or that, and you. You get out in the chase track on it, and you just get into a good rhythm, and it jumps really well. That that gave me huge satisfaction. Um, and doing that, obviously, in a race, you're you're never always looking for the big strides, the ones outside the wings. You're always looking to get a horse into a rhythm and and, and get him popping away. And um, 
that was what I took huge satisfaction out. Novice chasers, I, I just loved riding novice chasers and, and getting them jumping. I got a huge thrill out of that. And if, if that race goes well, do you have to win that? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, there was, there was no satisfaction in finishing second okay, no matter okay. right. horse jumped. <laughs> horse jumped really well, got round, finished third, no thanks. No thanks, no, yeah. Look, and sometimes you were happy to finish third, but no, never. Winning was everything. If a horse jumped well and won, that was, was great, yeah. I'm just interested what your dad said. You, he said you can't teach that because, like, it's. I mean, in, how, what percentage of the law as a jump jockey is to be able to identify that? Because it gives you such an advantage that obviously you're never going to really relinquish. Um, yeah, to a, to a certain extent, and, and there was times now in my my career where seeing a stride so far away sometimes backfired on me because right. you were going down to a fence and you knew you were all wrong, and you you started trying to organise too far away from a fence sometimes, and that. That can backfire on you as well, where sometimes you're just better off uh, just keeping the revs up. I always did try to keep the revs up on a horse. Um, but if a horse wasn't giving you a good feeling, you were going down and maybe six or seven strides where you, you knew you were on a wrong stride, where the other jockey maybe didn't see it as early as you, he was keeping the revs up and going forward, and you might lose a length. Um, thankfully, it didn't cost me any races, I don't think. Maybe it did, I don't know. But, um, yeah, sometimes you could lose a length or two because you're you're seeing it a bit earlier and organising a bit sooner than you should be. So when you're when you're watching a race in over the last 20, 25, 30 years, who did you identify as watching a race, a jockey that was exceptional at that as well? Oh, when I started off, Paul Carberry was yeah, the man every right. jockey wanted to ride. Like I I knew very early in my career that I was never going to be able to ride like Paul Carberry, so I had to go for my own style with the hump in the back. But um, Conor O'Dwyer was another one as well who was a just a, a joy to watch riding over fences. Connor on a novice chaser, he was absolutely brilliant on them. Um, and a man watching that, that I, I watched an awful lot and learned an awful lot from watching. It is, it is like I suppose everyone thinks like his or her era was like the the time to be, but it it, it does almost feel like the likes of Conor O'Dwyer and Carby that like when you watch them in a race, I mean, it was almost like it was it was a golden era of horsemanship, and like Carby was just you watched him at a fence and it actually gave you a thrill and you mightn't even have a bet in the race, might be a novice chase in Clonmel or something and and it was just like poetry in motion pretty much. Yeah, it was. You know, I, I'm so lucky to have ridden in an era, a generation of the best jockeys that ever graced the race course in my opinion um, and you could start listing names forever and ever and, and you'd leave someone out but the likes of Paul was definitely, without any shadow of doubt, the most naturally talented jockey I ever rode against but then the likes of Ruby, Barry, McCoy, Conor O'Dwyer, Dickie Johnson, the list goes on and on and on and I'm just so lucky that I rode in a generation with them and I have to say that I shared a way room with them. Can you talk to us a bit about the transition from show jumping to national hunt? Was it always in your head from the time you were a kid and watching the show jumping that actually what you wanted was to be in the race and the maelstrom of the race or was that something that kind of evolved as time went on? How did that happen? Um, it actually took a bit of time for me to to settle into it, and luckily for me, um, when I started riding out and, and, and got my amateur license and started uh, started as a conditional, um, there was a lot of schooling races in Ireland. There still is, but even more so in them days, you had Punchestown, Fairy House, Thurlis. There was an awful lot of schooling races, and I think when I started riding, Jesse would have had eighty or ninety horses in at the time, and going around in schooling races was a huge advantage to me i know they're schooling races and they're not the same pace as, as a race but it just helped my i adjust to going that bit faster to trying to pick up the strides because when i first started schooling at home i couldn't see a stride going that gear quicker I just i couldn't work it out at all 
Um, and I was always looking for the first one. The first stride is not always the best stride to take. And I was always looking for the first one and taking the first one. And it took me a while to adjust. Um, but once I adjust, adjusted to the different stride pattern um, and the different speed, it, it made it a lot easier. But if there was no scooting races, I would have looked like a right bendy going out and race to start off with, I can tell you that. Can you take us back a step before that? When did you decide you wanted to be a race jockey? I always wanted to be a, a jockey. You know, my father trained horses in the 80s and had plenty of success doing that. I used to ride out my Shetland pony with the with the strings and Podge Gill was my father's stable jockey and I had RP written across the front of my head and I always liked to ride out with Podge and do all them sort of things. But um, then I went into a career of riding ponies, show jumping all the way through. I rode in a point appointment when I was 16 before I went to England um, and I was four years in England show jumping and I just financially couldn't see how the show jumping was going to work out um, where I was going to get the big owner from to, to buy the big horses because I wanted the show jump at the top level. I didn't want to do it at, at an ordinary level. Um, so I couldn't see where that was going to come. So I decided to come back from England. I'd had enough of England and, and was getting fed up of English life as well. So I just wanted to come home and, and start afresh. Um, my mother had a horse in training with Jesse at the time. So I went down there riding that out um, every day and then uh, got my conditional license, rode a winner for, or actually rode a winner as an amateur on my mother's mare in Thurless, or in uh, Punchestown, sorry, for uh, on my first ride over hurdles. Um, and that was huge satisfaction out of that. And then went to Paddy Mullins, I was um, conditional jockey to Paddy Mullins for two seasons um, and learned a hell of a lot down there. That was an experience and a half, I can tell you that. He was a fantastic man to ride for and a great mentor as well. Um, and it just sort of snowballed from there. But it, I think from a young age, I always wanted to be a jockey, but always thought, with my father being six foot two, that I was I was never going to be the right height, the right weight to be a jockey. What height did you end up yourself? I'm 5'10", I think. Right. Yeah, 5'10". Um, I've got a bit of my mother's shortness as well, thanks. I'm happy meeting between my mother and my father. Well, I was going to say, any more and you'd have been in significant trouble. 5'10", still pushing it. Yeah, it is, but a, a jump jockey can get away with that. And... Um, Thankfully, I have my father's build for him slim as well. So weight, like when I was, I think it was nine stone, nearly ten stone when I was sixteen years of age, um, and I just never, from there, never matured a whole lot. When I came back from England, as I said, I was four years in England. When I came back, I was twenty years of age. I'd never hadn't stood in the scales since I was sixteen, and stood in the scales, and the scales said ten stone seven. And I thought, bloody hell, if it's ten stone seven now, I put a bit of effort into this, I can surely get down to ten stone and. I got close to it anyway. And come here, when you were in England, was the dream to be an Olympic gold medalist and winning the Aga Khan in the RDS? That was what you were there for? That was kind of what your focus was? Yeah, it was. It was to a certain extent. But on a Saturday during the winter, I got up early in the morning, uh, got the horses exercised and was in sitting down at 12 o'clock ready to watch Channel 4 race. And um, right. that was all I was interested in during the winter. And I actually went racing a good bit during the winter because winter is kind of the, the quiet time for, for show jumping and I was went racing a good bit in England when I was over there um, just as a spectator. And I'm interested as well, you said, Robbie, that you kind of got fed up of England. Yeah, I did. I'd been, I was only 16 and I'd been away from home for four years and got fed up as well in the sense that I didn't see it progressing any further. You know, when you don't see um, a progression coming, it kind of gets... And everything was getting a bit stale. Everything gets a bit stale, you know. Um, so it was time for me to, to come home. 
So the nice easy life of a, a national hunt jump jockey in Ireland. It's like, right, in, out of the frying pan into the fire. I guess the, the thing that you mentioned there that happens is an early winner, which obviously is like this incredible adrenaline rush where you're thinking, I want more of this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I mean, the first, when I crossed that line, it was an unbelievable feeling to ride your first winner. Um, I can remember it as clear as day. I can remember it as clear as my last um it was a fantastic trail and yeah once I got off that one then I was bitten by the bug and um, as I say I went to a, a condition to Paddy Mullins and, and was still riding out in Jesse's as well one day a week so um, I, I couldn't believe when I turned conditional in first week in January I had my interview in the Turf Club I rode my first winner um, on Hennessy Day in, in Leprosel as a conditional so it, it happened pretty quick for me I was very lucky in that sense and you mentioned Paddy Mullins there, um, Poppy. What was what was he like? For me, he's he's one of the most intriguing men that ever graced a race course. And I remember going back, it's 20 years next year since nearly Moose won the Galway place. I mean, he was, I suppose, a bit of an enigma, but what was he like to be associated with and as a, as a tutor? Oh, fantastic. He was a man of very few words. He didn't say a whole pile, but what he did say, you um, you took note of, that was for sure. Um he was a genius with horses as well. I remember getting off a horse one day and telling him, um, you're going to struggle with this one, boss. And he just turned around and said to me, I'll prove you wrong. And sure enough, he proved me wrong. It went on, I think, maybe seven or eight runs later to win three or four on the bounce, you know. So, um, no, he was he was a genius, genius of a trainer. And I say in his 80, 83rd year, um, an, an Oaks winner and, and a Galway plate winner in the same season, that just goes to show a classic on the flat and, and a handicap in Galway that he could turn his hand to anything when it came to horses that's not did bad did he say much to you in Galway I don't think so. Paddy never said anything to you after a winner um, he was very um, no he would never give you heap huge praise on you nor would he put you down too much he was always filling you with confidence as well and I remember getting off a horse one day and I turned to give, give my um, my debrief after the race and he just said to me I'll talk to you in the morning and I thought, oh my God, I went home that evening, I didn't sleep a wink, uh, arrived into the yard at quarter to eight the next morning, and he pulled me aside and, and told me what I'd done wrong. And uh, I was like, why didn't you say that to me yesterday, boss? And he said, if I gave you a bollocking in the parade, the owners might want you the next day, and I want you on that horse the next day. And, and that was his he did a method or theory behind everything. And um, yeah, it was, uh, he was, he was a genius for a man. And was it was like it? his was it actually a bollocking or was it like a polite kind of listen you did that wrong don't do it again yeah basically he knew like uh, if Paddy Mullins didn't have faith in you riding the horse he didn't put you up on the horse um, he knew going out there he said to me one day I asked him what would I, should I be doing and he said if you don't know what you're doing I have the wrong man riding him so he never gave you instructions he was confident in, in, in you. even at that young age when I that young age I was he was confident I knew what I was doing and uh, he, that filled you with confidence as a jockey as well um, yeah, no, he, he was he was an unbelievable man. There's a story, Ger, where um, I think Willie and Tony were both riding um, in Goran or somewhere anyway, and Paddy was driving home and he was disgusted that I think neither of them had a winner on the day and they'd both been riding for him and he turned to Maureen and he said, your sons will be the death of me. And uh, I think like they always got that wit from him as well. Like they're three totally different uh, sons of the three trainers, but there's always kind of crack with them and something special about them as well. Uh, we, we had our choice of uh, a gazillion different 
races that we could have pulled from for some highlights but we've actually gone for uh, it's not off Broadway at all but it's a slightly different one you won a Cheltenham Gold Cup on Sizing John which is obviously a bigger race than the Punchestown Gold Cup but it was such an amazing race that we're going to just uh, play the clip of this one so this is Sizing John winning the thrilling 2017 Punchestown Gold Cup have a look on the left, the red jacket, Connie Green, Nico de Boinville, Jacket Dam, Ruby Watch in the centre, red cap sizing John Ruby Power on the near side. They're on the run down towards the final fence now. Jacket Dam in the centre from sizing John Connie Green, the inner. Coming down the last now, it's Jacket Dam from sizing John Connie Green on the inside. some finish what do you remember about that yeah I remember every bit of it it was uh, probably the most exciting race I ever rode in um, one of the best races I ever rode in without a shadow of a doubt uh, Kona Gree jumped off and went a, an unbelievable gallop there was no let up whatsoever um, I don't think Sison John was at his best on that day but um, yeah no it was a, it was an unbelievable I thought when I made a mistake at the second last that 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 was it. I was going to be beaten, and then Jack and I made a mistake at the last, and, and gave me another look in the door. And thankfully for Size and Johnny, put his head down and, and battled all the way to the line. You know, it was an unbelievable performance to come back after Cheltenham and, and put up a performance like that in Punchestown. Was was an unbelievable training performance as well. Do you know you've won the race at the end, or do you have to wait for the photo finish to be announced? No, I actually when I crossed the line, I was I was I kind of thought I was up and then by, I knew by Ruby's expression that I thought he was down uh, and I actually had a little wave to the crowd and then just after I waved to the crowd I thought to myself oh it's a bit close to be doing that maybe I shouldn't no thankfully I actually thought I'd won by more than I did I think the official margin was a short head I thought I'd won by a head or a bit more than that so um, yeah no I, I was always confident that I was up but there's always that split second when it was taking that little bit longer for the the um announcer to say first number whatever number size John was that day first number five I don't know uh, it just puts a little bit of doubt in your mind and you're thinking oh no I made an eagle of myself and what, what was the relationship with Alan Potts like uh, Poppy? because I, he probably had a reputation for being a bit of a stern man or whatever didn't seem to talk to the press that much but what was he like to ride for I didn't talk to him very often either he, at that stage in his career he'd, he'd um Anne had been sick. She was, I think that was the last day that uh, they were, actually that was the last day we were both racing because shortly after Punchestown, uh, Anne, Lord of Russia, she passed away and then a few months later, Alan did. But um, Anne was a lovely woman. Um, when I did meet them at the race, she was a fantastic woman. And I suppose it's very hard for me to say what they were like um, to write for because for the short period of time I wrote for them, um, they were just, everything went right. You know, there was winner after winner. My first sort of major festival as um as their retained rider. I rode five horses for the entry and four of them won three grade ones. So yeah, they were they were pretty straightforward for me to ride for anyway. It is kind of one of those sliding doors moments as well that you end up riding for the pots and that, that where that took you in your career. Yeah, exactly. Like I mean it was it was Alan who wanted to be riding all his horses and then after Aintree riding four winners for the or three winners four winners for the Tizards in Aintree 
and then coming back to Punchestown and riding another couple of winners for for Colin as well and um, more sizing John winning for Jesse as well and it was just uh, yeah it was it was huge and that opportunity to go over and ride in England for Colin Tisler was uh, was brought on from from Alan and when we started the following season I went over and, and had a chat with Colin Tisler and he said that most of the owners were happy for me to ride his horses so whenever I was over riding for Alan or that or on a Saturday if I could be over to ride for them even if Alan and didn't have a runner uh, they wanted to use me so it was it opened a good door for me and I suppose opened that door into the likes of Lost in Translation and and, um, and Reserve Tank and other horses like that in retrospect, what was the starting point for that? Do you think, like, cause it's obviously a game changer in terms of like your status in the in the sport. Even though you're still the same person, you're still riding at the same level and the same ability with obviously more experience. But in retrospect, what do you think was the bit that got you that break? Winners, uh, winning the Gold Cup and Sizing John definitely gave me the break for with Alan and Ann Potts, and then riding four, four winners at Aintree for the Tizards. Uh, Colin Tizard definitely, definitely was the was the break for them. And when it came to the following that Chepstow meeting in October is always the sort of kickstart for Colin Tizard season. And when um, we went to that meeting, I, I think that was the first day I rode Lost in Translation as well. And uh, I think I rode a couple of winners from that, at that meeting. So um, yeah, winner winners Colin Tizard was driven same as me. He was driven by winners. So uh, when I was riding winners for him. And was coming over. He was happy to use me and on all horses, not even just on the lands. And Robbie, do you think you were a different person? Like, if that had happened to you ten years previously when you were younger, would you have been ready for that and able for that and just able to do all the business that comes with with being you know, essentially a sole trader when it comes to those opportunities? Or was that just timing? It didn't really matter what age you were and what level of experience you had in the world. Uh, well, I definitely think the ex- having the experience and the confidence, it, it couldn't have come at a better time, confidence wise and. And experience-wise, I suppose, but um, I'd like to think that if I had, if I had to come along five years earlier, or ten years earlier, that I would have been able to handle the situation. Um, I had ridden a few up ten years before 2017. I had ridden some big winners as well, so I do think I would have been able to handle the situation. But um, yeah, no, it was and having company as well when you were traveling. Barry was still riding, and Ruby was was still riding as well. But wasn't traveling as much, but Barry was traveling the whole time back and forward, and was having Barry good friends for the last 25 years so um, travelling back and forth with him then as well was was made the whole thing a bit easier them early mornings on a, on a Saturday or a Wednesday or whatever day it is getting up at 5 o'clock to head to the airport and, and not getting home till 10 or 11 o'clock that night is um, a long days. but when you have someone with you who's a good friend of yours it's a good company it makes it a lot easier Yeah and also a peer who you can go geez, I really screwed up there or that went really well for me or I got a bit of a break there or that guy's a bit of an asshole and stay away from him that helps as well because like, you can actually you know you're in competition but you're not really No exactly yeah we go we, we were going to do a day's work and win, lose or draw whatever happened we were we were travelling home together anyway and um, we, I think we I think we had good respect for each other anyway so yeah, no, it was always good to have someone there to rub off and to chat with. There's nothing worse. I've, I've done trips on my own as well when you're sitting in the airport on your own and all you're doing is fiddling with your phone. So um, it's always great to have a bit of company with you. We were talking... You're really part of a golden generation. Oh, definitely. No no doubt about that. Yeah, I was, I was lucky to have, as I say, to have shared away room with, with the best jockeys I think that ever graced the race course anyway, male and female. We, mm. were, we were talking a little bit um, earlier about the... the ability to find a stride and and uh, and also the track record of people who you worked with very early on in your career 
because of that and because of the the grounding that you had, when your winners started to come, you were ready for them as well. Because sometimes myself and Johnny will talk to jockeys who've won a massive race out of nowhere and we're like, oh, this is going to change your career. And they're like, well, not really. The phone hasn't, there's no difference in, in the number of people ringing me. And that seems to be the case. It's not like, um, I, I guess what I'm trying to talk about here is, is you winning the Grand National um, with a very young trainer on Silver Birch at 33 to 1, which is kind of a massive moment in Gordon Elliott's life. Uh, but for you, whatever came afterwards, everybody was happy to use you more. Was that a, a big in, injection in terms of people coming to you and saying, we want to work with you? Oh, it definitely was. When you ride a big winner, um, it doesn't matter what stage in your career it is. Uh, when, when you ride a big winner, it, it, it's there. They can't take it away from you. And if a trainer is thinking about using you, you can, oh, well, I'd be lucky enough to win that race. And uh, yeah, okay, we can use you in that race. You know, there's, um, yeah, definitely. It doesn't matter what stage it is. But I definitely do think, maybe I was younger and was a, an up-and-coming jockey, but I definitely do think that riding winners, when I won the Galway Plate, in 2003, I was never as busy as I was for the next six months for for a long time in my career riding um, because I won the Galway Play, which is the first major jumps race of the season. Um, got, I, I still had a bit of a claim as well. I think I still had a three pound claim, so I, I was very busy for the next few months riding for trainers that I'd never ridden for before um, because they'd seen you. And that doesn't so much happen so much nowadays because I think it, I think a lot of it's to do is with the trainers difficulty for in getting staff that they have to kind of use their own jockeys rather than bringing in outside jockeys to ride their horses uh, back when I started there was no issue with staff in Ireland but nowadays there's a huge issue with staff in Ireland and trainers kind of have to stay loyal to their own more nowadays than um, they did back then But and that does happen then on the big day obviously the trainer has to change but as a three pound claimer back in 2003 I was very very busy because I'd ridden a big winner and trainers had enough staff they didn't care what jockey they used they went for the best available and if they wanted to take three pounds off a horse they were, they were getting me and go on sorry Johnny where do you go from now sorry where do you go from here um, I'm taking a couple of months off uh, I'm going to let everything settle down I've had a few um, interesting phone calls about, about job offers for the future um, but I've told everybody that I'm taking a couple of months off and I'm just going to sit back and, and, and weigh up my options going forward. Um, I'm having a job done on my gallop on, on the yard here at home and getting the gallop resurfaced and all that. Uh, I'm not going to train horses, I can guarantee you that. I was going to ask. Yeah, it's like, oh, a gallop, <laughs> I, you say? I, I would be open to pre-training and, and, and doing that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to weigh up my options and see, see what offers are on the table over the next couple of months. Offers in different fields, offers like, you know, is, is there something specific that you're like, you mentioned pre-training there. Was that an accident or was that like, ah, that's kind of the direction I'm heading in, do you think? No, I would quite like to work with some young horses uh, and, and, and pre-train horses if somebody wants to, um, to to send horses before they go to the big trainers to me, then I'd be more than happy to take them. Uh, and I would like to do a lot with what my father did for years with the... Uh, uh, teaching horses, young horses, how to jump, or horses that have had problems on the track uh, with their jumping, and, and trying to correct that. I love working with horses with their jumping and, and getting horses jumping well. That's something I've always enjoyed, and I enjoyed helping Daddy with that. And, and Daddy's still around to help me with it now if I wanted. So um, yeah, no, I'd really enjoy doing that because I love getting an ordinary horse jumping to turn them into a good jumper. I get great satisfaction out of that, and I most definitely want to stay involved in 
in National Hunt Racing. There's no shadow of a doubt. And I want to have a, a reason to go racing. And if I had a horse here for two weeks that I'd been schooling and got him jumping well and he was running a novice chase in Ferrios and Navin, it would give me great pleasure to go and watch him jump around and, and hopefully win. And just you mentioned your dad, um, Robbie. How uh, I guess, how pivotal and you know um, instrumental has he been in your whole life to this point? Well, my whole family have been huge. Um, and my father had a very bad accident in '88, and my mother sort of took us under her wing and did all the early steps with us, uh, getting us going on ponies, getting us out hunting, um, doing all them sort of things as, as kids. And then when we started going to shows on on twelve twos and thirteen twos and fourteen twos, we had a had a brilliant trainer in our, in our father, but myself and my sister. So, um, yeah, we wanted for nothing in, in that sense. Um, but when it went, when it came to race, and I don't think Daddy ever. He never criticised the, the ride I'd give a horse. He'd criticise if I was riding bad down to, a, to an obstacle, but he'd never criticise the ride because Daddy never rode as a jockey. He, he wouldn't understand and didn't claim to understand race riding or the pace of a race or, or things like that. Um, but if you came back in after making a mistake at the last and getting beaten on one, he might say to you, what were you doing going out to the last? Or why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you keep going forward? You know, them sort of things. Um he, he, he was very critical of that. I'd say you loved that, did you? I, uh, I, <laughs> I did, but sure. That's what you need, and, that, and that's what made you um, made you the better rider. You know, you need criticism. Every jockey needs a certain amount of criticism um, to make you a better rider. And uh, Daddy wouldn't have criticised me if I well, he probably would if I wasn't able to take it. But um, <laughs> you had no choice in them days. You took it, and that was it. And, and he was right. Nine, nine like. When I made a mistake on a horse, I was always the first one to come back in and put my hands up and say, I made a mess of that. I often, often did that. And when you make a mistake at the last or at any fence in a race, you know when you've gone two sides the back of that fence what you did wrong. You know straight away. Um, a lot of times because you had form momentum, I got away with it, especially down to the last couple of fences. But um, there were one or two times where I got beaten on ones that made a mistake and, and they shouldn't have probably made a mistake with my own fault looking back on your career obviously there are incredible highlights that it starts with a bang and finishes with a bang and there's basically everything that you would want to win as a, a national hunt jockey in between were there down periods where you were like oh, I've had enough of this right and uh, I'm not talking about the injuries because obviously that's you know they're horrific um, but it does seem to be kind of part of the job description at, at some level unfortunately was there just a were there ebb and flow moments where you're like I've had enough of this I'm sickened by this um, no, I don't think so. Um, I think there was one stage, I can't remember what year it was, but it could have been back around 2008 or nine. Uh, we started off that summer and come the end of August, I think I'd written four winners for the whole summer and was contemplating, should I go to England or should I do something different? There wasn't, things weren't just going the way I wanted them to go. Um, and next thing, all of a sudden, just turned the corner and I think I rode probably 20 winners or maybe more than 20 winners between between uh, the beginning of September and Christmas. It's just for some reason what, I don't know. Um, it just turned. But I'd had a bad summer that year and had, hadn't been injured all summer. Um, so that wasn't an excuse. But um, yeah, just for whatever reason, I don't know that year. But that was the only time ever, I think, where I, I thought about moving on and going somewhere else, going to England um, or trying something different. But uh, if a job offer had come available in England back then, I probably would have gone. But Thankfully, it didn't, and I stayed here, and things picked up pretty soon after that. 
and in the end being able to bilocate between England and Ireland at that level then when you did get on the great horses that was I, I, I guess like as we, we talk about uh, a massive moment in retrospect in your career and that kind of elevates your career to a level where you're in that company of all those great jockeys yeah exactly you know every day I was riding a lot more I was an awful lot busier going back and forth to England uh, and the way the schedule is both in England and Ireland it, it works out perfectly because Saturday is a big day in England and Sunday is a big day in Ireland so every Saturday you were flying over to Newbury or Sandown or Ascot or wherever it might be and coming back then on a, on a Sunday for um, for Navan or Punchestown or Fairy House wherever the big meeting was in Ireland and you were getting the best of both worlds um, the odd time in the season there was going to be a clash I think there was a clash once I think only ever once where it, where it affected me. Obviously, it would have affected Ruby and Barry a lot more, but it was a good horse run on a on a Sunday in England. But the Dublin Racing Festival, Lost in Translation, ran one day in the in the City Isles in Sandown, and I was over here in, in Ireland riding in, at the Dublin Racing Festival. So that was the only time there was ever, I think, where Colin Tizard wanted me in England and uh, Jesse wanted me in Ireland. But the Dublin Racing Festival, the Dublin Racing Festival, and I was staying here. And thankfully, Super Sunday won the the Irish champion hurdle that day as well so um, it worked out in my favour for once that time When you finished up at Punchestown what was going through your head was there a specific moment or a race that you were looking back on or that, that kind of flicked across your mind and went oh yeah okay that's it that's that's the bit that I, I'm taking with me here I think my last my last winner um, Magic Days a novice in, in, a, in a handicap chase um, jump like a book made all I got huge satisfaction out of that in everything that happened in the race was just what I loved doing, um, riding a novice at speed, jumping from fence to fence. And if I hadn't have had rides the following day, I would have gone there and then. But um, my good rides coming up later on that Thursday, I Ashdale Bob in the stairs hurdle, I just got beaten. And then I had Tia Poo and, and um, rapid response the following day. So I wanted... I didn't want to let anyone down. Jessica Hinton been so good to me for twenty plus years, and I wasn't going to go out on a on a on a winner when I had a, more book rides coming up for the next two days. So uh, when my agent rang me on Thursday morning to book rides for Saturday, I said no. I said we're not riding Saturday. Um, I have good rides today and tomorrow. Hopefully, one will win. And if I ride a winner on TV, I'll announce it then. But if I don't, I'm getting off TV and, and announcing my retirement then. Right. Did, you, did you get off Magic Days sort of thinking like okay if I don't have another winner that would not be a bad way to bow out I no, I was I was happy getting off her that that was that was great satisfaction I got a huge buzz out of that and I was happy to announce my retirement there and then but as I said I, I, I did want to ride on because I had booked rides and I didn't want to, to not ride so I was mm. yeah I wanted to keep going until that's why I didn't take any rides on the Saturday well, listen, Robbie, it's a sensational career that you put together. We wish you the very best of luck in whatever comes next and specifically enjoy the few months off. Are you going to get away and get some sun? What's the what's the plan for the next few months? Yeah, I am flying over to London tomorrow morning for the FA Cup final um, with Lovely. a few friends of mine and then going to on holiday with the family in June. Um, but being a big Liverpool supporter, obviously the Champions League final comes before that. So I'm going to the... Being a Liverpool fan, it's a good job I retired when I did because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to go to all these things. <laughs> did you get tickets for Paris? 
I have a ticket for Paris. I do. Very nice. Very nice. Jesus, that yeah, that is at the moment currently that. priceless. Uh, if <laughs> Tilly Bill Ger wants one. If you hear of any more going, just let us know. <laughs> well, listen. Congratulations, and uh, I wish you the best of the two cup finals as well, Robbie. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a million, Ger. It's, uh, All Rob- the best. Robbie Power there, uh, as I said, putting together an absolutely sensational career. That's the first part of this edition of Friday Night Racing, brought to you by Horse Racing Ireland. Love every racing moment. Visit hri.ie and the hashtag is every racing moment. Friday Night Racing on Off the Ball. Brought to you by Horse Racing Ireland. Love every racing moment. Visit hri.ie. Friday Night Racing on Off the Ball. Brought to you by Horse Racing Ireland. Love every racing moment. Visit hri.ie. The countdown to the tote tend to follow for the flat season has begun with entries opening on Monday the 23rd of May. This gives you plenty of time to study form and make your selections for the season ahead, both free and paid for. Tend to follow games available. Check out tote.ie for more details. It's another busy period of race sponsorship for tote with the tote always SP or better handicap taking place at NACE on Sunday and the 2022 renewal of the Tote Killarney National at Killarney on Monday. Johnny, we can talk a bit about those in a few minutes, but um, you were in Aidan O'Brien's on Monday. Yeah, good visit, um, Ter. It was uh, always a nice uh, day to spend in Ballydoyle, and just it's like a five-star hotel for racehorses, and if the, it wasn't a particularly nice morning, but you'd be blown away by it as they uh, come up to you on the gallop and one after the other, and there's even a little speedometer uh, on the side of the gallops, which is clocking every horse as it passes, like 41, 43, 48. Um, and Aidan was in great form. Um, he just spoke about, like, I guess his derby horses. He was basically winning every trial around him until uh, Desert Crown won during the week. Um, but he has, uh, he had Luxembourg, who was favourite for the derby. He more or less ruled him out a day or two beforehand. But he has Stone Age changing of the guard, Star of India. So he has, like, all these potential contenders. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's actually shaping up to be, despite Luxembourg not there's Shame not to be a hell of a derby now and Sir Michael Stout having a contender as good as the favourite is uh, kind of rolling back the years as well So how, how many contenders are there realistic I mean look we we whittled the field down and then an outsider wins 40 to 1 and you're like oh well okay so it's obviously very difficult to predict the winner but what do you think when the betting comes to be made and they're talking about the realistic contenders how many will there be in the end? Um, it's hard to know because Epsom is a Epsom's a mad racetrack. Like so, strange things can happen at Epsom. We've had some massive price winners in recent years, and that does happen for a reason. Sometimes pacemakers get away; they're ignored. Um, there's a lot of a you know, there's a camber there. There's a lot of twisting and turning. It's a very very unusual racetrack to be running a race as good as the Derby, but such such as um, you know the nature of the race anyway. And that that having been said, I think you could easily make a case for six or seven of them. Pisbadil, who's trained by Dunico O'Brien, um, he's a very good horse. The form of his Leopardstown win last time is working out really well. I could see him possibly being a ledger horse down the line, but he's certainly a very good horse. Changing of the guard beat a very well-fancied horse for the Derby, easily at Chester. Um, and he just seems to be improving with time. And obviously, Desert Crown was brilliant during the week. He's really unexposed as well. So I think it's a cracking Derby, I have to say. It's really shaping up uh, to be one of one of uh, the vintage derbies of our time. And, you know, we spoke to uh, a jockey who was definitely part of a golden generation. Um, this is a very, very good derby. Uh, a, a quick reflection on, on the career of Robbie Parrick. Now that he's not here, we can say even nicer things about him. Irish people are not great at taking compliments, but he, he deserves them because, um, you know, he's, he's humble enough about uh, the decision to get involved 
in English racing at the time that he did, it was about winners. People wanted him. They wanted his services and they wanted his services because he was very good. Yeah, he was. And I think like the, the thing with the, the, the Colin Tizard link up was very interesting because, you know, some had kind of come and gone in that job and he entrusted Robbie at around the time when Colin Tizard started to get some seriously good horses. And, you know, that came out of the, the pots uh, link. But, you know, he liked Robbie so much that he was essentially riding all his best horses. And this was in his, I guess, was in his late 30s, really, when this happened. And he's he's a good um, indication of somebody who persevered and um kept going and got his reward eventually um he was probably he wouldn't he would say himself he wasn't the most stylish jockey in the world but a real horseman and totally bred for the job and i always um found robbie um i always find him just a decent fella he's he's there's no real crap out of him he, t- he tells it as it is he doesn't big himself up um but really really good horseman and y- you could tell sort of why he loved novice chases because he was brilliant in novice chases you'd see him um school and a horse that was kind of raw at the job and both of them kind of living it and enjoying it as the race developed he'd uh, Paddy Mullins I mean to work for him like I, I think Paddy Mullins is an absolute genius in terms of horses um, you can see the dynasty now that has come and has come from Paddy Mullins but he was way ahead of his time and I think you had a nice insight from from him there but so Robbie benefited greatly from that and Jessica Harrington as well such a loyal trainer to be involved with um, and uh, it's interesting he was a little bit kind of vague and maybe nuanced on what he's going to do in retirement. But I, I think the story of Robbie Power is only halfway there at this stage. Yeah, it's it's funny how um, you talk about Paddy Mullins. In American football, they talk about the coaching tree of these great coaches. And I suspect that there's loads of other people who have crossed paths at various important moments in their careers for a year or two years or three years who aren't his sons, but who have gone on to have amazing careers who lean back on their experiences with him and have been formed in seminal moments by his advice or his behaviour or his condition, uh, how he conditions people to behave. And, um, you know, I think the influence is clearly being uh, carried on by uh, his bloodlines, but also, I suspect, by countless other people that were kind of unaware of the, the importance that he had at various stages. Let's talk about the racing this weekend. Where do you want to start? Yeah, there's only one place to start. Uh, Newbury tomorrow, the lockage. Um, Baez, he's a, he's a son of see the stars. He's he's gonna be a, a sensation, I think, at Stud because he's so quick. He's essentially a miler. Um, brilliant uh, horse for Jim Crowley to get sort of at this stage of his career. Um, Jim Crowley, the next jump jockey himself. Uh, I remember his dad used to give us word for uh, Jim's horses. His dad used to work in Satanta uh, back in the day. Jer, we had our days in Satanta, and Jim's dad used to give us word for Jim's horses. It was good words uh, at the time. That was over jumps little did I think he'd become a flat jockey but he's riding the best miler probably in the world in Baid, um, who takes on Mother Earth um, Aidan O'Brien's filly she never runs a bad race but it's going to be very very difficult for her here and you see how good this race is like alcohol free is rated 117 um, but he's a 40 to 1 shot because Baid is that good and uh, as much as he only beat Palace Bear by a neck when we last saw him I thought he was quite superior on the day it was a bit of a messy race and he's a really really sensational stallion prospect I think uh, and will continue the legacy of Seeds stars as well by 11 to 4 on in that race can you see him getting overturned um it's his first run back um you can get you can get one to two i mean wouldn't wouldn't be for me maybe his first run back but i think you know if if he's solid in the market you're fully expecting him to win he's a, he's a class apart and he wouldn't want a muddling race that'd be the only thing but um with nine runners he should be okay on that score okay what about uh, the irish racing this weekend 
Yeah, a very good race in um, at uh, Navin tomorrow. Um, the main race there would be the Yates Stakes, which obviously honours the great stayer Yates. And uh, Arbitus is a fascinating horse here. One first time out, Idna Ryan had three horses in a course and distance made in three weeks ago. He, they finished first, second and third, and he was the biggest prize of the lot of them, and he won well. Now, you can either imply that he wasn't showing enough at home or that he needed the run or whatever it is, but like I'm not letting my eyes deceive me. He was very, very good. I think he'll take an awful lot of beating. Another star three-year-old from the uh, Aidan O'Brien Battalion and obviously then we have the uh, the Coolmore Sprint and the Goffs Lacken Stakes uh, at the, at Nace um, one of my favourite racetracks uh, on Sunday so if you're not doing anything on Sunday um, get along to Nace hopefully the weather is nice and um, yes yeah, some cracking racing this weekend and all eyes on Baid I guess Alright Johnny good stuff that's this week's episode of Friday Night Racing in the books thanks very much for joining us as I said a little bit earlier we broadcast live every Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock across Off The Ball social channels you'll get us on youtube.com forward slash off the ball or on twitter as well and then obviously on friday evenings at eight we are live all in association with uh, horse racing ireland love every racing moment and uh, we will see you next friday afternoon at three o'clock take care friday night racing on off the ball brought to you by horse racing ireland love every racing moment visit hri.ie